instrument. Sorry. Thank you. I am. Uh, my name's Shane Ash. I'm a husband of one, a father to three kids. The humor's not very good around here, but <laughs> but you're still beautiful, nonetheless. Even if it's a little slow, we're all right. All right. I was raised on a wheat farm in the southwestern corner of South Dakota, in the Black Hills. Uh, I was raised in the Holiness Movement, which is good. I've, at least I've heard it called the Holiness Movement. We may talk a little bit about what it is that's moving these days. I hear stories of the Holiness Movement, and I see some images. And this image today reminds me a little bit of the stories that I've heard, of what it means when people can get together for the sole purpose of saying, we're going to continue to grow, continue to offer our lives to Christ. And I'm told that all of you are going to be here Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Is that, that's what I, you said. They said... I am so impressed with that. I really am. <laughs> but ever since I was knee-high to a South Dakota grasshopper, uh, and that, they're, they're, they're fairly large, I have not, I've known only one thing, and that was the call of God on my life. Maybe it was the seeds of my grandfather that he would set me up on his knee and he would say, now repeat after me. When I say, what are you going to be when you grow up? You say, I'm going to be a preacher. That may have had something to do with it. But I've only known this image of the church. I've only known this call of God to say, give your life away for the sake of God's mission. It, I, it, is, a, it is a gift, right? It is that. And I'm very grateful for it. That call, that, that formation that was given to me out of my grandparents and then to my parents and then into Bible college and in seminary and into ministry, that formation that, that God has kind of, the trajectory, if you would, that God has put me on has formed me into the person that stands before you today. And, and I'm grateful for it. It's beautiful. And it's It's also hard. For 16 years, that call led me to pastoring in a local church. I pastored in three churches, and two in Cincinnati, Ohio, and one in Kansas City. The last eight years or so, that has been my story. It was good, and it was beautiful. I love the church. I love Jesus. That one you can say amen to, right? But it was about two years ago that that call, that, that kind of trajectory began to get disrupted in my life. And it didn't make any sense to me because my grandfather had set me on his knee and he had told me to say when he asked me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I was supposed to say, I'm going to be a preacher. Now, my grandfather was a farmer, which is what I really wanted to do. But he had told me to be a preacher, and a couple years ago, something began to speak into my life. I like to call it the voice from elsewhere. We're going to hear about that in the next couple of weeks. It is this call of God that began to disrupt, and I went in and talked to our church board, and I said, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand this, but I really need some time, and I need some prayer. And so we agreed as a church board to begin to pray, then we invited the congregation into it, and we said, what is God trying to say? There was a sense of dread. There was a sense of disruption. Anybody ever had that? When God begins to speak and, like, messes you up, man, I hate that. 
And now all of a sudden, I began to say, what is happening? And so my church board said, you know what? You've been here eight years. This is a, you know, that's kind of a normal cycle that happens in ministry. You know, you begin to kind of get worn out and burn out. What we want to do is we want to send you on sabbatical. We want you to take a break for eight weeks. We want you to really discern. We want you to have a spiritual director in your life. And we want you to begin to pray. And we're going to pray with you as you go. We're going to send you. And we're going to pray that God will somehow speak into those eight weeks. Because, God, that's all you have, eight weeks. And when you come back, you'll be healed and you'll be fine and all that disruption will be gone. Amen. So I left for eight weeks. We went to the mountains. And uh, in the mountains of of New York and Adirondacks, there's a lot of farms. I love farming. Did I say that? Grew up on a farm and... We drove by this one place, and it said Sugar House Creamery out on the front. And I said, oh, that would be nice. We'll start up just a little dairy. We'll just pull in there. So we pull in. Didn't have any idea who they were. We met this very nice young couple, Alex and Margo, walk in the door. We got our three kids with us. We get out of the van. Hey, and they got a little storefront, a little farm store out front. Hey, how you doing? They said, hey, come in. We're milking the cows. Come in here. And I go in. They've got these beautiful brown Swiss jersey and cows in there. They're milking, and it's this beautiful barn. And all the cows were telling jokes to each other and laughing. And all the cows were smiling. It was amazing. Like, good job, bro, sister. I almost said brother, but that didn't happen. Good job, sister. Woo, you know, and they were high-fiving each other. And it was like this incredible joy that was in the middle of this barn. I don't know how to describe it to you, but it was real. There was joy in the barn. And I'm talking to Alex and Margo. They're a young couple, and they're just this beautiful people. And they're like... Man, this is so great. We love, look out there. Isn't it amazing what God has created? Look at those mountains. Look at these trees. You know, look at the, oh, and, and they're just going on. And I'm just like, who are you? <laughs> because I've been preaching the gospel about joy, and I haven't seen joy like this <laughs> ever. And we left that barn, Sugar House Creamery, and Alex and Margo have become incredibly good friends to us. We left that barn, we got in the van, we drove on their little driveway, and we get to the end of their driveway, my wife looks at me, and she says, Shane. I said, yeah. She said, there's something wrong. I said, what? She said, there's something wrong. That here... Even the cows are happy. <laughs> we drove away from there and continued to hike a few mountains and we explored the, the East Coast and I met with my spiritual director and I'm on the phone, I'm praying, I'm reading books, all trying to resolve this disruption, right? Did I tell you that part? This call. We come back to Kansas City because it was district assembly, and I didn't want to miss district assembly even if I was on sabbatical because that's how loyal I am, right? (laughs) I had permission to be gone, and I still went because I was going to get some extra brownie points from Dr. Jaron Rao. I don't think he even noticed. And I left district assembly, and I had scheduled in my sabbatical, actually our church board had done it for me, to go to this little place called Conception Abbey. It's a, uh, it's a basilica out in the middle of northern Missouri. I mean, out in the middle of nothing. 
and it's this Benedictine chapel where they practice the rhythms of prayer every single day. It's a beautiful place. And something happened there in that place that has radically changed my life. I'm going to tell you about it in a little bit. But I, want, I said all that just to kind of tell you a little bit about my journey, but also to tell you this. I have an observation to make this, this evening. I confess it took me 16 years of pastoring before I was able to see it, 40 years of, of living before I was able to acknowledge it. It is something that has been shown to me from the roots. That's, I've seen it in the lives of my parents. I've seen it in the lives of my grandparents. It, it was given to me in that formation It comes from listening to faithful people whom I have pastored. It comes from listening to people who have disgruntledly left the church that I pastored. And it comes from listening to those people whom I have met who want nothing to do with the church that I'm pastoring. And it's the same observation. You ready? We're tired. I really think it's tiredness. And because we're tired, we're not always easy or pleasant to be around. One proof, by the way, of our tiredness is the simple fact that we are here. Because what do we call this thing? Revival. There was another name, too, I heard someplace. Holiness Summit. That's a really fancy word for revival. I like that. Revival, I think, is the best word for it, is it not? That's what we're asking for, is it, is it not? Renewal? Revival? Isn't it? So if we say that we're here for revival, here's what I'm assuming. It means that we're either asleep, tired, or dead. And I don't think we're dead yet. Are you with me? Because I believe in the local church. And I know this for certain. God is still king. Jesus still reigns. And his body, the church, still serves a purpose, as I already said today. But I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are tired. I see some nodding. I like that. That's good. Anybody with me? I think there's some reasons why we're tired. This is a very hard paragraph, and I'm going to say it up front so that by the end you'll forget about it. I think maybe this is why, partially, why we are tired as a people, as a church. Because we have pursued religion as a performance or a competition. Because we live in a rat race fueled by the lie of scarcity, by the way. Because we have made the church, religion, holiness, a practice of effort. Because we have given our allegiance to a host of idols that now enslave us. It's a big sentence. We are thick with idolatry, as one of my spiritual theological heroes, Walter Brueggemann, says. Thick with idolatry. We, the church, 
are consumed with want. And it's not want of holiness for the most part. We are burdened with the weight of our debts, both personally and in our churches, both financially and emotionally. That's my paragraph. Maybe you'll forget about it by the end. That'll be good. But really, over the next today and three nights, that's what we're going to talk about. That's it. These are the things that I believe wholeheartedly have enslaved us. And I've come to that observation and that awareness because I'm able to finally see it and I was able to finally recognize it in my own life. I have good news for us tonight. Jesus has something to say to us in the middle of our idolatry and in the middle of our want and in the middle of our tiredness. And I think this is what Jesus wants to say. It's very simple. I think it's going to be up here. I believe. Two verses out of Matthew chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there. We bring into this place a multitude of translations. I'm going to choose to read it tonight out of the message because sometimes we're so tired that we can't hear the words because we've already heard them so many times. And maybe tonight these words, because they are fresh and new, Maybe we're actually able to hear and listen to Jesus. Here are the words of Jesus to you this evening. And before we read the scripture, I want want to just mark this moment with a prayer. Father, these are your sacred words. Would they speak to us? Would we lay down, release, open our hands, all those things that we hold on to, our expectations, our our fears, whatever it might be, may we release that so that our hands are open so that we can receive something from you, a gift. May we receive an understanding in your word. So this is your word. Speak. And may we hear. Amen. Jesus says, Matthew 11, are you tired? You can answer the question. He's speaking to us, so go ahead. Are you tired? You worn out? Burned out on religion. It's a little harder answer, isn't it? You don't want somebody next to you saying, you just say yes, right? I mean, you're in church for crying out Right? We'll get there. Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me, and you will recover your life. You realize recover your life, right? That means that it's lost. Back. What you got right now, worn out, tired, and burnt out, that's not life. Not as it's supposed to be. Not as Jesus hopes it to be. Not as God dreams it to be. He says, I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Walk, work, and watch. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The words of Jesus. Thanks be to God. 
Who do you think the ones that he's speaking to are that are laboring and heavy in the context of this, of this Matthew 11? We gain a little bit of insight just a few verses later in Matthew when Jesus chastises the scribes and the Pharisees because they tie up heavy burdens, hard-to-bear burdens, and they lay them on the shoulders of others, it says. But they themselves, as the scribes and Pharisees, are unwilling to lift a finger to move them, it says in chapter 23. The heavy burden that they've laid on the people is not the actual even law per se. It was their interpretation of the law and the practice of the law. For instance, they would exclude from meals those that were ritually unclean. And by the way, those that were ritually unclean kind of depended on who they didn't like at the moment. They would then say, this is what you have to do as a people. Take this on. Carry that burden. They began to place restrictions on Sabbath and they began to ignore human need rather than being able to pick the corn out of the field, as Jesus said, right? They were like, what are you doing that for? You can't eat. Jesus was like, my father kind of owns this stuff, so didn't think I was hurting anything. You get it, right? And they began to say, you know what really matters is that you haven't tithed off the different spices that you've grown in your garden. That's actually in there. Chapter 23, go look at it. They were more concerned about tithing the number of mint leaves, Jesus says, than they were about justice or mercy or faith. Chapter 23. You see, the religious leaders that were in Matthew's story... Not only were they placing these burdens on the people and they were saying, this is what it means to practice this religion. And it was becoming this weight, this tired, this tired, this burden, this effort to try to please God. But not only that, but these religious leaders, by the way, were also in this complicit relationship with the Roman rulers. They were kind of twisting the rules to maintain the relationship with the imperial system of Rome and here are the common people, the church attenders, those that were sitting in the, in the pews, those that were having to carry the burden that the leaders were putting on them. They were not only carrying the burden of the temple, but now they're also carrying the burden of, of Roman occupation. And the wealthier got wealthier, and the, those that were powerful got more powerful. And you know who was participating right along beside that? The Pharisees, the temple leaders. They were just jumping right on board. You know why? Because they got to attend the same parties as the Roman elite. They got to jump in beside those that were in power. And they got to live the life of the Roman rule all the while. Can I use the word the church? I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I will. The people of God were suffering under the injustice, the weight of power. The people had become not only enslaved to the religious system, but they had become enslaved to the, to the political system, if I can use that word, the way of the people. And Jesus comes along, by the way, and if you think that Jesus didn't talk about politics, we're crazy. Because Jesus came in and directly addressed, through the Pharisees, by the way, their complicit relationship, not only to the religious of saying, here's what you have to do in order to please God. He also addressed their complicit relationship with the Roman powers and said, you, friends, you are snakes. <laughs> now, I know we don't suffer under such things as that. That was, that was sarcasm. That, I, mean, that, I mean, I know we're learning each other a little bit, but that was supposed to, like, you know. I know we don't have any of that weight in today's society. When we begin to try to align ourselves with power 
or we begin to try to justify ourselves, ourselves with obedience. I promise you, by, by next week, you'll forget that I meddled in this, okay? I, I mean, it'll be fine. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to those people that are under that system, are you tired? And they all said, yeah. He said, are you worn out? And they all said, yeah. Are you retired of this religious burden? Yeah, weird, huh? How come, you know, yeah. I, I chuckle because I know what's in my notes, and we sang, sat at the front row, and we were singing songs today. Your love never fails. You know, we begin to sing all these lyrics of, of this God who embraces us, that will go to great lengths to rescue us. We, we sang all the great songs, but I'm not sure we even hear the words when we're singing them. Did you know that? We don't. We got some great stuff up there. We're singing some great theology. We're like... It'll get better, I promise you, I promise you. So let's break this down a little bit, all right? What does Jesus actually say to those of us that might possibly find ourselves in such a situation? Jesus says, come to me. That's how Jesus works, by the way. Not go do this or go do that, but come to me. These are the words of Jesus. In a sense, by the way, I you know, get in trouble some more right here, but we don't necessarily invite Jesus into our hearts because guess what? Jesus comes running to us. That's what the gospel says, by the way. I ought to get a few amens. It's not that we get to own this thing, by the way. It's that we are saying we will give our lives away to Christ to become owned or servants to him. Not that we get to own God and kind of capture him, which, by the way, is a problem. Thank you, sister. Jesus says, come, come on, come on, come, come on. By the way, that's an imperative command. Like, you, come here. (laughs) There's a bit of demand there. The question is, are you going to obey it? That's really the question. Are you going to come to Jesus? You know, right, that discipleship starts, holiness starts, with a simple invitation, command, follow me. You know that, right? We do, I think. I think we do. Follow me, Jesus says. This whole thing, church, being a Christian, the whole thing starts, initiates at one place, following Jesus. But guess what it requires? Keep following him. And for some reason, we have decided that that the whole journey of Christendom is in the moment of saying yes, but it's not. The whole journey of Christendom is learning how to keep up with Jesus and go where Jesus goes because he's going to take you some crazy places that you don't even want to go. Because you know where Jesus goes, right? Anywhere, but it ended up in the story, he goes up a hill. And where does that hit? What's on top of that hill? A cross. And Jesus said, pick up your cross and what? Follow me. And for some reason in the church, especially in our kind of holiness culture, we expect. 
respect God? I'm not sure exactly what it is even. Maybe you can help me figure that out. But there's this, there's this stop in our process of following Jesus. And I think when we discover that we've, okay, we've got a new good pattern of going to church, you know. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus is looking for something different than that. He's looking for you to follow him. So Jesus says, come to me. And I think we also need to remember something else when Jesus says, come to me. Jesus, Jesus tells us over and over again, why is this so hard? I'm not sure why. Jesus tells us over and over again that, that when you see me, you have seen the... So you agree, right, that, that Jesus is God? And we also agree that, that God is Jesus. Right? Is that right? So if Jesus is God, and God is Jesus, you want to know who God is? Where do you look? You look at Jesus. Jesus is saying all the time, let me tell you who my God is, you know, who God is. He was his father. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And that's how we learn, by the way, who, who God is, is through Jesus. Jesus becomes the lens or the interpretation, the hermeneutic, if you would, the word that I preached about this morning. Jesus becomes the interpretation of who God is. If you can't say it's true about Jesus, then you can't say it's true about God. And what you can't say is true about God, you can't, it has to be true about Jesus. Amen? And it's Jesus, by the way, that tells us that my father is like, well, he's like the father who owned a big farm. And his son came to him and said, I'm really sick of this life. I'm going to go to the city. And he takes half of his inheritance and he goes to the city. You know the story, right? I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> and he goes to the city and he spends all of his inheritance, it's in the Bible, I can say this, on drugs and sex. It's in the Bible. That's my, it's in the Bible. You can get away with saying anything as long as you say that afterwards. <laughs> he spends all of his money. And then he has to go get a job, so he goes and finds a job because he knows farming. He ends up working for another farmer, feeding the pigs. But he wasn't allowed to eat the pig's food because that would violate his contract, apparently, on this farm that he had. And he's in the pigsty, and he's pouring out the pig food, and he realizes, I don't have anything to eat. I'm starving. I'm broke. I took half of my inheritance, and I already spent it. And he begins to think, what am I doing? I can go back and I can say to my father, Father, I don't, I'm not your son anymore. I don't ever deserve to be your son, ever. I understand that. I already took my inheritance. I went and spent it all on drugs and sex. And now I found myself in with the pigs. I don't, I'm starving. I don't have anything to eat. But in my father's house, by the way, the servants eat three good meals a day. Even the servants eat three good meals a day. He's like, I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to my father, I don't want to be your son. I just want to work for you. Because the contract I'm in right now really stinks like pigs. So he packs his bag. Well, he didn't have any bags. He didn't have anything. He got himself out of the pigsty and he begins to walk towards home. And the scripture says, while he was a long ways off. I love that language, right? A long ways off. How far was he? A long ways off. He was a long ways off. And it says, the father who every single day left out the driveway and went to the top of the hill. I'm making this part up, but I believe it to be true. And he got out his binoculars, maybe even a and he looked as far as he could see down the horizon. And there on the horizon, one day after he'd done it for hundreds of days in a row, he finally saw this little death. And he looked at it and he thought, I wonder who that is. I wonder if that's a shepherd kid. And he's like, no, no, no. I wonder. What? That's what he said. What? I think 
it is. And he put down his binoculars and he took off running. Are you with me on this? Because this is really good stuff. And he is sprinting. Now, this is an old man. And old men, you know, they don't sprint very fast. But he was flat out flying down the road. His sandals are coming off. His robe is flying. It actually says he picked up his robes. You know that? And he's running down the road, flying as fast as he could, completely humiliating himself. Because that's not what a rich, dignified farmer would do. And he runs after her, and there's this little speck, and he keeps running, he keeps running, he keeps running, and the son's got his head down. He's not looking at anybody because he's ashamed. What am I finding? And all of a sudden, this guy runs up to him, picks him up, and is holding him, and he's jumping down, and he's like, son, son, I found you. Oh, thank you for coming home. He wasn't even home yet. But God, the Father, this is what Jesus told, by the way, this story, ran after him, came to him, rescued him, and all of a sudden then was pick his head up and be like, Maybe I should go home. Jesus also said, by the way, this is the same Jesus. They said, same as if there was more than one. Same one, yep. That said that God is also like the shepherd, by the way, who has a shunted sheep. And all of a sudden he's over there and he's like, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 98, 99. Are you kidding me? Shane, you, where are you? You start looking around, counting. Oh, 97, 98, 99. Shane, he realizes that in his pen of safety, there's only 99 sheep, but he's got 100. And he walks away from that 99 sheep, and he goes out into the wilderness. And he hikes all night and the next day and he's following the tracks and the tracks are going all over the place and God walks into the places that he shouldn't be in and he walks out because he's following the tracks and he keeps on walking and he walks in another place he probably shouldn't have ever been in and he keeps out walking again and he he goes over and all of a sudden he stops and the tracks kind of stand still and walk in a little bit of a circle and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He keeps going, he keeps going. And all of a sudden, he sees 100. And he walks over. This, this is in the Bible, by the way. You know that, right? And he walks over, and he picks, up, he picks up the sheep, Shane, and he puts him on his shoulders. He's like, let's go. And he walks back home. And he rejoices, and he's jumping up and down. Are you with me, right? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burn out on religion? Come to me, Jesus says. But I got one more. Before we even think about coming to Jesus, Jesus is already chasing us down. It's the same Jesus, by the way, that says God is like the woman who had ten silver coins. She obviously had a plan with those ten silver coins. I don't know what she was going to do. Maybe she was going to give them away or maybe buy a new house. But she was desperate to make sure that she had all ten silver coins. One night, she was looking over and she realized maybe it was the day before her, her, her buying her house. I don't know what it was. And she went over and she realized that one of those coins is missing. And she spends all night long. And she takes every rug out of the house. She sweeps the house. She gets the vacuum out. She moves every purse of furniture. 
She picks up all of her husband's stuff that was laying around that he didn't pick up. And she gets desperate. So you know what she does? Jesus says this is what God does, by the way. She calls her friends. That's what it says. And her neighbors. And saying, hey, come help me. So now they're looking, and all of a sudden somebody's like, got it! And they're like, woo! And they throw a big party in the middle of the night, and the other neighbors are walking up, they're like, what? And they said, I found my coin! And Jesus said, that's exactly what happens, is that God is on a pursuit to find you. And when he does, he calls together all of his neighbors and the angels and whatever else, the saints before, and he says, hey, guess what? I found my coin! I'm going to lose my voice. (laughs) So here's my question. Jesus says, come to me. Well, who will come? All those who are weary, heavy burden. Who are the weary? Is it us? I've heard stories of holiness movement. I've heard stories of my own family. I watched it in my, my own grandpa's life. Of a willingness to, to give absolutely everything away for the sake of the gospel. I wasn't alive yet, but I hear that my grandfather sold his combine a month before harvest to give money to a missionary. And I'm not sure I can even give up a Starbucks for this week. I don't want to tell all my stories on the first night, but. But on sabbatical, I drove a truck to Conception Abbey, and I got out. I'd never been there before, and it was a little bit weird being in this, like, Catholic place. I say that with, you know, it was just different for me. It was like, what? What is going on? Surely God is not here. Just joking. And I get in, and I knock on the door. A guy comes to the door, and he's got a brown robe on to the floor. And he says, Shane. Yeah? That's, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I'm Shane. And he said, well, come in. So I come in. He said, we've got your room ready for you. And he takes me down the hall, and there's a little room. It's about eight by eight, something like that. And a, I guess you'd call it a bed. I call it a cot, but it's a place to sleep anyway. I put my bag down. And he said, I'll see you in the morning. Okay. Here's your schedule of prayers. So I looked at it. The first one was at 5.30. There were seven prayers that next day. And 30 minutes each. And I was there for a week. (laughs) I said, okay. Because to take you back to my sabbatical journey, I'm trying to resolve this tension in my life. What is it that's going on? Like, what, God, are you trying to say? I go to bed, I get up in the morning, and I show up at the Basilica, and there was a group of people there that was also, so the crowd was, was pretty decent size, and I sit, and I listen to these 
40 or so Benedictine priests, monks, pray and sing. And I sat, just kind of an observer, a lot like what you're doing. And it was over, and I got up, and I went to breakfast. Went to my room, got a book out, I read. Before I knew it, the next time came, I got back up again, and walked over to the basilica, and I sat down. There was a group of people there. It was a pretty good-sized group. And I sat, and I watched, and I listened as the monks sang, prayed, and began to notice a few things about the room that were really intriguing to me, and the pictures on the wall, the beautiful basilica that I was in. I began to pick my head up a little bit and look around and thought, this is quite the place. I left and ate an orange, went back to my room, barely sat down, put my book up, book up, and I looked at the clock and I'm like, dang, oh, can I say that in here? Sorry. It's time to go pray again. So I walked back across the campus again. I went in the basilica and I sat down. And I listened to the monks sing their songs and pray their prayers. And this time I figured out what page they were on, so I was able to follow along a little bit. <laughs> and I got in there. And then I went back to the room seven times a day. Day one. Day two. Day three. It was about day three that all of a sudden it, it began to, to click with me. I had never prayed before. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I pray every Sunday. <laughs> I pray over my sermons. I pray over my lunches. I often pray when I need something. But I hadn't prayed in that kind of a way before. If you know anything about the liturgy of the church, there's this beautiful structure of, of self-surrender where you start to get to the end of yourself and you actually begin to start to seek God. Fourth day, I got up this time with a little bit of anticipation because I began to realize what it was doing inside of me and the beauty that it was forming inside of me. And I got up and I walked with eagerness to the basilica, and I went. I was able to join in with the prayer, and I was able to join in with the song, and I was standing up and sitting down at the right time, and I began to, to receive this just gift of presence, and I go eat breakfast, and I go back to my room, and I look at the clock and I say, man, when are we going to go back and pray again? I'm going to go be, be early, right? I'm going to go be early this time. And I go back and I sit in the basilica. I can't wait until they show back up. And pretty soon they come back in and, and we pray and we sing the songs. And I figure out the rhythm by this time and I'm participating in it. And I begin to sense something different and new inside of myself. And I go back to the room and I say, man, I should just stay in this chapel because I mean, we're going to do it seven times today. I mean, I may as well just go and stay. It's, I mean, that, there's something really good happen here, and I go back, I get to the evening service, and I walk into the chapel there, the basilica, and I take my seat, which is kind of my routine, like all of you got your normal seat, right, the routine, I sat down, it was about midway up to the front, and it was kind of to the outside aisle, you know, it was like 
I wanted to be connected, but I didn't want to be too connected. One of those kind of people, right? Like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And so I'm sitting down and start the process, and I'm listening to the prayers, and I'm participating in it. And suddenly, something I became aware of is I kind of looked over my right shoulder, and I, I looked over my left shoulder, and the group that I had been kind of beside there at the Basilica joining, they must have left, and I realized that I was the only person sitting in the pews, the chairs. The monks are singing their beautiful songs, they're praying their prayers, and I'm sitting there, and I look up, and one of the, the monks came down out of the rows that they sit in, and he, he picked up a little water stick, we call it, and he walked over to his brother, and like that, it wasn't a whip, it was water, right? And he goes, and water splashes over him. And I could hear his words, and he said, remember your baptism. And he goes to the next one. He splashes the monk, and he says, brother, remember your baptism. And he goes to the next one, he splashes Brother calls him by name. Remember your baptism. I don't know, it's about 30. It takes quite a while. And he gets done, and he walks back towards his seat, and I, I was really moved by this idea, and I was kind of thinking to myself, yes, that's, that's, that's the journey, isn't it? Remember, remember my baptism. Remember the fact that I gave my life to Christ. Yes. I'm not mine. I'm Christ's. And I'm kind of sitting there. I'm stuck in this moment. I'm like, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah, this is really good. And I look up, and I realize that the monk is standing at the end of my, of my aisle. I'm over here. And he had walked out into the congregation about right here. And he goes, like this, which is a universal sign for what? <laughs> Come here. And I, I looked over my shoulder. I knew I was the only one in the audience, you know, out there. And I look over, and he's like, he didn't say a word. Come here. This is in August. It's hot, Missouri day. I got a T-shirt on and flip-flops. And I walk, kind of shuffle over to the end of the aisle very awkwardly. And I get right to the end, and I'm kind of standing there like this. And he looks me in the eye. He takes that water stick. I don't know how he had a gallon of water in there. but it <laughs> And he, he, he goes like, <sighs> like that. And from the top of my bald head to the bottom of my bare feet, it was just like soaked in water. I'm not sure how it happened. But it was just like full-on sprinkle. And he looks at me, and he goes, Remember, that grace is for you. And he walked back up to the front, and they filed out as they do every, every day. And I sat down in that place, and I wept, and I wept. Now, I told you a little bit of my story, right? Sixteen years I've been a pastor. 39 years, I had known nothing less and nothing more living and growing up in the church. I told you that part, right? And standing in the most unexpected for me place with the most weird events being splashed with water 
by the Benedictine monk. I said yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him for the first time. You're going to say, well, how is that possible? Routine, religion, tradition, and effort. But I had failed to pick up on one thing. That it is the person of Jesus that I must say yes to. It's not the church. It's not my grandpa. It's not my family. It's not the ordination board. It's not the denomination. It's Jesus. Jesus speaks to us tonight and says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Have you done the same thing? And here's my premise. I think many of us need to hear Jesus say, come on. Come on. Come on. Because that invitation by Jesus, come on, come on, come on is because he's already sprinted a million miles to find it. He's already walked through the wilderness to chase you down. He's already spent all flipping night turning the rugs over to find you. And now he's finally face to face with you, and he's like, come on, come on, come on, I found you, come here! What are you going to do? Jesus says, come on. There's nothing else the next three nights together. We're going to talk about what that looks like. To say yes to Jesus. I'm not ashamed to say that I've only been following Jesus for two years, but I've been a pastor for 17. Let's stand together.